0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back listeners to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over chapter 9 in book 3. This one is titled, Challenges to Mormon Social Trinitarianism, which is the view that we went over the last two episodes. And we actually brought up some of these objections in a form last time, just because I hadn't read ahead yet, so I guess I jumped the gun a little bit on that. But we'll go over them a lot more objections here that I didn't even think of, and some other stuff. So Let me start it out with a quote from the book that just kind of introduces the whole topic. So you say, There can be little doubt that the view of the LDS Godhead that I propose differs quite significantly from traditional theology to the extent that it rejects metaphysical monotheism as the conceptual matrix to develop a theology. I submit that this view is more faithful to the scriptures and recognizes the nuances of the word God and the divine nature more adequately. I am certainly not claiming that the scriptures spell out these commitments and logical entailments in the way that I have. I am claiming that these basic commitments are fully scriptural and that the tradition has slighted the senses of God that recognize that there is more than one of the kind divine. And so I guess that's just kind of a little caveat to start out with, which I think is, you know, a good way to do it. You're saying scriptures you know obviously don't explicitly say this or everyone would just be like oh well that's the view but what you are saying is that with this view it makes sense of the scriptural body as a whole as far as you can tell and also makes logical sense which hey that's good too anything to add there
1: well solely that the view that i'm presenting is certainly more sensitive to the critical biblical view of the old and new testaments and critical of the way that quote-unquote monotheism is parse. we have to recognize that the term monotheism never appears not even once in any of the scriptures and that it is a conceptual term and that monotheism when we begin speaking of monotheism because the word means just one leads us astray because instead of dealing with the data it just gives us a conceptual matrix in which to pour everything
0: all right and that bleeds right into the first section here which i'll have jacob take
2: the title of this section is The Problem of the Godhead and Monotheism. And so the primary argument against Mormon beliefs by many conventional Christians is that Mormons are, in reality, polytheists rather than monotheists. We hear this all the time. You guys believe in many gods. You believe in three gods. You don't believe in the one god. But uh, you all spring up, so in Mormonism, we have but one god in at least three senses. First, there is only one father who is the god of all other gods. And the fount of divinity for the other divine persons, this being the Most High God, God the Father. Uh, The second is, there is only one divine essence or set of shared properties or qualities that are severally necessary and jointly sufficient to be fully divine. And number three, there is only one Godhead consisting of the three fully divine persons joined in indwelling unity as one God. Do you want to expound on any of those three?
1: Yeah, what I want to point out is that the innovation presented in Mormonism is that the existence of the Godhead is contingent. That is, it's possible for it to not exist. The Godhead could fail to exist if the three divine persons failed to choose to love each other, and they're fully free to make that choice. They have very good reasons not to make that choice. In fact, overriding reasons not to make that choice, but it's still one that's logically open to them. The second is the commitment that it is the nature of the loving relationship on which the divine properties depend. So another way to put that is that the divine properties emerge from the relationship of divine love to be something that they share over and above just what they are individually. The way that a a molecule of oxygen is something different more when it's in a molecular relationship with two atoms of hydrogen than it is when it's all alone. They manifest different properties. And so what we're looking at is the fact, and this is the key notion, the divine persons cannot be divine without each other. They must agree as one, they must love as one, in order for the divine properties to exist at all. And so they can't exercise the divine properties in the absence of the divine unity that they share. They can't be one God unless they choose to be one God. But it also guarantees that there couldn't be a more almighty, there couldn't be anything more powerful, and that they must act as one in order to be divine. And so this secures the type of unity that's required for the scriptures. In fact, that is the scriptural notion of unity and of the one God. In the Old Testament, You have one God who works through the sons of God or or angelic beings, and the sons of God are called gods. They're the same kind as God is. And so there's a a most high God, but he always acts in unison and through others. It's the same thing in Christianity, that the the Father acts through the Son and um, the Holy Ghost represents them both and testifies of them both. So that what we have is only one will ever being expressed. That, but it's this notion of an emergent divinity. There's another way to put that, and that, that is that the divine properties supervene on the relationship of the divine persons. This would be a way of saying that when we're speaking of God as the Godhead is literally the love of the divine persons for each other, and they've invited us to share in that same relationship of love. So what we're talking about, in this sense, God literally, literally, and I use that instead of metaphorically, knowingly, God in this sense literally is love. There would be no possibility of God, and God arises from and is given power by and exists because of the love of the divine persons for one another.
2: Now, Brian
1: Leftow, and who is he? Is he uh, like an evangelist? He's a leading philosopher of religion who teaches at Oxford. Now he's an American, I believe, who teaches at Oxford. Very bright, a leading figure in this area.
2: Brian Leftow claims that social Trinitarianism is a violation of Jewish monotheism. And you bring up, well, the the first question we have to ask is, you know, which Jewish monotheism are we violating here?
1: Yeah, I mean, Leftow's argument is simply a historical one. He's saying, well, Christianity arose out of Judaism And they kept the same notion of God when they rose out of Judaism as before. They were Christians, and so any sound Christianity's view of God would have to square with Jewish monotheism. What he fails to do, in my opinion, is to account for the fact that there isn't just a single view of Jewish monotheism. And even more importantly, is it Second Temple Jewish monotheism? Is it the Jewish monotheism of the rabbis? Is it the Jewish monotheism of developed Judaism today? Which Jewish monotheism does he have in mind? Because they're not the same. And even more importantly, does he mean a form of the biblical notions of the one God? Does he mean Israelite monotheism, the kind that existed before the dispersion of, of the southern kingdom? Does he mean that there is simply a single view that is framed in the Bible and that we have to adopt that. It seems to me that this kind of historical argument, and that's why I, you know, in part, why I did the first part of the book was to show that this kind of historical argument is just misinformed. It's not based upon sound data. And when we looked at Second Temple Judaism and Israelite views of deity and the council of the gods, we found that it was not metaphysical monotheism by any stretch of the imagination. And what Christians ought to be striving for, it seems to me, is faithfulness to the revelation and what God has disclosed of himself, because we only know about God when he discloses it to us, and not some kind of made-up concept that later classical Christianity came up with as a matrix in which to shove everything, because what he's really doing is trying to smuggle in the notion of metaphysical monotheism as the proof text and the proof case and the procrustean bed that everything has to match.
2: Right, uh, and you also bring up the fact that the notion of metaphysical monotheism seems to me to be a paradigm that is imposed on the biblical text, but which is rather foreign to it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is pretty clear for anyone that knows very much about biblical history, that you read in the Bible that there was the belief of there were many gods, and Yahweh was just chief among the gods. He was the god that would always win, That's why we depend on Yahweh, not because he's the only God, but because he's the most powerful. Why would Leftow even think that metaphysical monotheism, in this sense, is a paradigm that should be imposed on the text?
1: Well, you have to realize Leftow is, as brilliant as he is, he is a very staunch classical Christian theologian in the image of Aquinas and those who adopted that view of God. And so what he's really trying to do is enshrine the the Thomistic view of God as somehow the definitive Christian view of God. And it's just an assumption. Instead of doing the historical work to really tease out what he means, he just throws it out because it is, and, and here's the most important part of the argument. He knows that most of his audience will share this assumption with him without really critically assessing the assumption at all and therefore it will become a sound argument for them because they have a notion in mind, and they think that that is the Christian-Jewish notion. And if you don't fit it, you're out of touch with reality because that's what they taught and believed, and Christians believe the same God that the Jews did, and there you have it. So um, I think it's more of an unexamined, uncritical view. you know. And as learned as Leftow is, he should know better.
2: Well, then the next notion that we get into is that of Worship, you know, are are we worshiping just one God? And you bring up, you know, given that the divinity of the divine persons arises from their indwelling unity, it follows that any notion of worshiping the Son or the Spirit apart from the Father, the one God, is conceptually impossible. The reason that it is conceptually impossible is that the fullness of divinity of the divine persons depends on their perfect agreement and indwelling unity, making it therefore impossible for them to be fully divine without each other. So with that in mind, would we worship the Father if he was not in this divine unity?
1: No, we wouldn't. I mean when the when the father was immortal on another planet, I don't imagine the people recognized him as God and worshipped him until after like Jesus Christ. I mean when Christ was a kid, it's not like a lot of people were praying to him or worshiping him. Worship is a very particular type of activity for human beings. It is the recognition of the ultimate source of salvation and life and an expression of awe at the fact that this is the person who has set everything up for us and has given us everything and who offers us the possibilities of the greatest growth possible more than that and i mean i'll just make the statement i would follow the greatest love anywhere because love is the is the highest thing we know love is the greatest expression of the fullness of humanity that we can even conceive and the godhead represents that kind of divine love with the father having been the fount of that love if you will we love him because he loved us first so when we're talking about worship remember i mean let's put it into a biblical context you've got in revelation john on the isle of patmos according to revelation and he's got we know an angel who's taking him to heaven but he doesn't know that because the angel keeps calling himself jesus christ and the very god and all that and so John falls down to worship him, and the angel, in effect, looks at him and says, What's wrong with you? Get up. I'm just a fellow servant like you are. And so (laughs) the kind of obeisance that we give to God is not even appropriate for angels. And there's a reason for that. All glory and gratitude and honor go to the Father by means of the mediator, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Ghost. The fact is is we can't worship one of them without the other because their unity is so tight but the worship that we give them is because they have manifest this kind of steadfast love and because they have undertaken the program that they have and because of the kind of beings that they are because of being in this relationship and so it demands our worship it's a recognition of our dependence on them for the realization of, of what we hold to be the most important most valuable kind of reality imaginable
0: I have a question on this one so as per usual I have an analogy and then like a question about if that relates to this so when a super rich person donates to a charity though that's a magnificent act and it should be applauded and such we seem to value higher someone who does it anonymously not seeking this attention rather than someone that does it and then therefore says and and please make sure that you acknowledge how great of a gift this was go ahead are you saying that god himself is demanding this or you're just saying that the act itself seems to demand and i guess that kind of answers the question but i just wanted you to make the distinction if you would
1: well in the old testament god demands it repeatedly and you know, he's demanding that Israel recognize him as their God because he has undertaken to make them a nation and to protect them. There's a reason why he makes that demand. If they will recognize him, then they will be able to emulate him and share in his glory, and they will be his people known by his name. So it's really more like a king who is saying, you must recognize me as your sovereign and you have to swear fealty to me. And if you don't, then you're not included in my protection and in the kingdom. That's really the notion underlying what we're doing here. The kind of worship that we have in mind, you know, it's not like a sycophantic human being who's saying, look, you've got to suck up to me so I can, so I can give you more money. Or you've got to suck up to me and recognize me. That's not, this isn't, God is giving out of an abundance, not out of a need to be recognized. And again, I, I've used this
0: metaphor lots of times like I mean there's one thing to be a king and then demand it just because that's how you maintain your power but I don't think God necessarily I don't maybe to a degree he needs us to recognize his power for him to maintain anything but again my same analogy couldn't you say it's more like a, a master of anything maybe like an artist or you know a martial artist master if you come to him at least you know there's a saying that imitation is the highest form of flattery or i think we could change that around to being like imitation is the highest form of worship as well saying like you've come to me or i've at least come to you and presented you something you said you want to be like me and so i'm showing you what it's going to take to be like me and i demand obedience because that's what it's going to take you know if you if you want to become this it's going to require something of you and i have the knowledge and i have the know-how you don't and that's i just, just see that as for me, something that I'm more willing to give that kind of worship or, I guess, more willing to be obedient to that kind of character than to one that is just like, you know, I happen to have more power than you, therefore you have to worship me just because you don't have more power than me. If you did, then maybe you'd overtake me. But that's a different way of looking at it, I guess.
1: Yeah, God's not worried about being overthrown or not being able to pull off his plans. But he does need us. He needs us for the accomplishment of his plan because his plan is to have every single living soul to be part of his family and to recognize the fullness of his glory. Now, that's not solely up to him. It's up to us in responding to God. Now, he's very persuasive, and he has all eternity to work with us to persuade us. So maybe he'll be able to overcome even the most obstinate of of us in an eternity of time. But the reality is, is, it's just as you say. I mean. God is doing this because he wants us to emulate him. It's only by learning to love and being in relationship in the way that the divine persons are that we can fully share in what he wants to give us and in the kind of enjoyment that they have. And in a certain way, God deals with us as, as his children in more ways than one. There's this vast epistemic distance between us and God. That's a way of saying we're dumb and he's, he's way, way beyond us. The chasm between us and God is much greater than that between a human and a dog. And so, you know, I couldn't begin to explain why I'm doing what I do to my dog. I can train my dog and I can demand that my dog do as I ask so that he doesn't run out the street and get run over and so that, you know, we can enjoy each other's lives. But to a certain extent, there's when I take my dog to the vet, there's no way I can explain to the dog what germ theory is in order to have my dog understand why I'm, I'm having him undergo pain. So it's the same way with us and God. God's knowledge and power and his sheer presence in the universe is so beyond us. It's like you know, it's like the movie Ants. At the end it zooms out and you see that there's this little tiny ant that's their entire world that's sitting in this big field that's in the midst of a huge city, that's in the midst of a huge state, that's in the midst of a very large country, that's in the midst of a very large world that's puny in comparison to the rest of the universe. And so When we get a sense for our puniness in relation to God, then we can begin to see why the kind of demand is sometimes made. It's like a two-year-old arguing with its parent over whether or not it's safe to run out into the street. And the parent just looking at saying, you know, with the child, you have no understanding what you're even dealing with. You can't even say the words correctly. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just going to tell you you can't do it. So maybe it's like that in relation to God in the sense that he he doesn't lose patience with us, but he's letting us know there's a vast chasm between his knowledge and our knowledge and our epistemic positions.
2: I actually had a couple of questions just based on this worshiping thing we were talking about. I remember there was a, a talk that I believe it was Bruce R. McConkey gave. It was saying, be careful not to worship the sun too much because... You know, the father is that much more worthy of worship and kind of seems that, you know, if I'm worshiping the son and worshiping the father, is that more or less what it's saying?
1: In a sense, Christ sees himself and is presented as a go-between between between the father and us. And again, we're dealing with a, a client patron relationship and an honor shame culture. And so he's using his close relationship with the father in order to give us the benefit of that relationship. It's kind of like, look, I know the father very, very well. We speak in terms of a patron-client relationship. I'll introduce you to the father. It's not like I can't go to the father directly, whether the father doesn't know about me or can't hear me. It's simply that we must understand that in order for us to have the kind of relationship with the father that he has, we must love one another the way that he's teaching us to love one another. And he is literally the embodiment of a human being who demonstrated that kind of love in his life. And I think that's what was so compelling to his disciples. When a person is in the presence of that kind of love, they'll do anything. They'll die for it. They'll go to the ends of the earth for it, to spread the message about the most amazing love they've ever known or felt. And, and I think that's what Christianity is really about. And I think that's why it, it developed the way that it did and was successful. And it's why it's so worthwhile because that message of divine love, the message of Christ teaching us how to love one another, is worth anything we've got to do to get it spread. And that's the message.
0: All right. And I think also part of your question kind of gets answered in that next quote there. So if you want to read that and then kind of talk about why that would be that way.
2: So one cannot worship the Son without the Father any more than one can drink oxygen that is not joined in molecular unity with hydrogen to create water
1: and it speaks for itself doesn't it i mean we've used the analogy to water and and, you know atoms in a molecular unity several times to explain the relationship between the father and the son as a heuristic device and the reason is that they are so united that there is no way to approach one without approaching the other what what one knows the other knows what one does the other does what one wills the other wills and so The bottom line is is that we couldn't possibly deal with one member of the Godhead without dealing with the other members of the Godhead at the same time.
0: What I thought you meant by that quote was that because what we worship about the Father, let's say, the reason we worship Him arises because of the emergent divinity that comes from them. So anything worth worshiping from the Father is also true of the Son, and therefore, if you worship, one, for those reasons, you're also, in effect going to be worshiping the other one because it has those same properties. Is that not what you meant?
1: Sure. That's another way of saying what I just said, I think, but it's a good way of saying
2: it, yeah. With that quote, then I also have one more question. I think I might know the answer to this. So in the Scriptures, we have someone uh, calling Jesus good, and he says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but the Father. That's not an exact quote. I'm paraphrasing that. But why does Jesus say this? If worshipping one is worshipping the other, I mean if calling one good, you'd be calling the Father good, right?
1: Well, no. Keep in mind you have the earthly Jesus of Nazareth and he's teaching them to worship the Father and that he is introducing them to the Father. He's not the one taking the credit and when they say, you know, why callest thou me good? Jesus does this throughout his entire ministry. Somebody points at him and he raises his hand and points to the heavens at the Father because everything passes through. And so there would be no way for there to be some kind of recognition of Christ without recognizing that the Father is the source of everything for him. He loves his Father, he's teaching of his Father. Everything that Jesus does in his earthly life is about establishing his Father's kingdom on the earth. And so he's not pointing to himself. Not once in the Gospels, while he's immortal, does he ever suggest, even remotely, that he should be worshipped in any way. Everything goes to the Father. When he's resurrected, now remember, again, as immortal, he's not fully one with the Father. In the canonic relationship of Christology that I have outlined, he empties himself of the fullness of his divinity. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. And he doesn't always act as one with his Father. There's a possibility that his will would diverge from his Father's will. And he recognizes that possibility. And so when you get right down to it, Christ is recognizing that as a mortal being, he isn't fully divine. And it's appropriate for him to focus on the Father and to give all praise to the Father and all honor.
2: All right. And uh, with that explanation of him being mortal at that time, that was what I was thinking as well. Are there any other effects of Christology on this subject we want to, uh, to discuss before we move on to the next section?
1: A, a great many, because this notion of the Godhead works only if one adopts a canonic Christology, where the divine persons are not fully divine if they're not in the unity. And so the notion of an emerging Godhead is totally dependent on a canonic Christology as a beginning point. And so the notion of the Godhead is driven by the Christology, and the Christology is coherent with and fully explanatory of the the notion of the Godhead. So they're intertwining logically in the way that the notions work. In, In other words, these views cohere with each other, they're not at odds with each other logically. And it's important to recognize that if a person's going to adopt a canonic Christology, it seems to me that they have to have some kind of a notion of a social trinity where the divine persons are sufficiently separate that they are separate cognitive and conative centers of personality and thought.
2: All right, so the next section here is divine embodiment and monotheism. So your first quote here, you say, it seems to me that the concept that the divine persons are embodied as affirmed in Mormon thought immediately raises the suspicion that there must be more than one God because each is individuated by spatio-temporal properties in addition to merely relational properties.
1: Yeah, just remember that for Thomas Aquinas, he reduced the divine persons to not being persons in any sense that we would recognize, but to simply being what he called relational subsistences, where the subsistence just is the relationship in itself. The bottom line is that If we're going to individuate persons by making them limited in a sense that they have a body and that their identity is somehow located in a body, that seems to severely limit the persons in terms of what they are, how they relate to each other, but more importantly, makes them definitely distinct.
2: And then there are at least three important implications of this view of the divine embodiment. And that is, first, they're persons in a robust sense.
1: That's what I just explained. Instead of being mere relational subsistences, as in the Thomistic thought, or simply being some kind of nebulous notion of a being without knowing exactly. When we're talking about a person, it's much less than a distinct center of personality. When Mormons talk about the divine persons, they are persons in the fullest modern sense. They are persons in the same sense as the person next door. They're persons because they have a distinct personality. They are distinct in terms of um, not being included fully in what I am or what anybody else is and having their own, um, we would call this an essay. I'm speaking Latin, essay. I don't mean the thing you write. I mean essay, this essence of what is a person, a personal essence.
2: Okay. Second, they're distinguished by their possession of different spatio-temporally located, in some sense, bodies, as well as by their distinct wills and personalities.
1: Yeah, that just shows that they are distinct. Now, I want to say that I don't use the word separate. I use the word distinct. Distinct means that uh, that their identities can be distinguished, but that doesn't mean that they are separated in the sense that they would oppose each other. So I I Mm -hmm. want to keep clear that I'm using the word distinct instead of the word separate on purpose.
2: And here also saying that, you know, their bodies aren't the exact same body, so they're not occupying the same space with their body at the same time. Yep. And third, they can each act through their bodies in a way that is distinct from the other members of the Godhead.
1: I mean, it just stands to reason that it is obvious that when the scriptures say that Jesus ate fish, they mean that Jesus, this person who was walking around the Palestinian countryside, ate a species of fish, but the Father and the Holy Ghost did not. You know, when Jesus is doing things, he's doing it as an individual person. You know, I affirm many times the divine members of the Godhead, what they do, they do in common. But that's not true of their individual bodily acts in terms of what they do. So the Father could be in a spatially, temporally distinct location from the others and be doing things with his arms that the others aren't doing or moving his body in a way that the others aren't. So we, we need to keep that in mind. It's just obvious and clear. Now, I want to raise this issue again, and that is that remember that Christ resurrected. And, you know, classical Christians' heads are exploding about now. But if Jesus resurrected and still has a resurrected body, then everything I'm saying to him is true not merely as immortal, but as a divine being, a fully divine being. And so there's no easy way out to say, well, (laughs) you think God has a body, and we don't believe that. The fact is, is if you've got just one member of the Godhead who is embodied and still is embodied eternally, then you've got to deal with these kinds of issues and the kinds of distinctness that that you know implicates, um, you know, by simple inference of logic.
2: Next, you say it seems to me that whether God, in the sense of divine persons, is embodied essentially, and therefore is embodied only contingently, which
1: N- l- let me I understand let me correctly, say that, saying, let me say this: if I say that he's embodied essentially, it means that God couldn't fail to be embodied. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what I mean by. But embodied, essentially. It, it, it could be that God is not embodied essentially or necessarily and is still an individual divine being like the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. OK, that's a possibility. In fact, in the Holy Ghost would seem to be a concrete instance where it's a fact. And so Mormons tend to believe that God is essentially embodied, that is, he essentially has a spirit body, and to be divine, you essentially have to have a resurrected body, that is, you couldn't be divine without having a resurrected body. I've called both of those assumptions into question, and that's why I'm raising this.
2: So I I guess the question is, once one becomes embodied in the state that the Father and the Son are right now, is there a possibility for them to shed that body?
1: Don't know, the scriptures don't address that. Alma says that once a person is resurrected, they they are never disembodied or fail to have a resurrected body again. That's Alma 40. You probably recognize. It. And so I would suggest that the the scriptures suggest that the answer to your question is no. But I see no logical reason why it couldn't happen if they chose to. But the scriptures indicate that it just happens to be the case that once you become resurrected, you're forever resurrected and you don't ever shed your resurrected body.
0: But what you're saying is that the body isn't what makes you God, so that's not essential, so that's why you say you could shed it and you could still be God, because clearly he didn't have a body before and he was God before that, at least on your view, and we can say at least if we look at Jesus, clearly he wasn't embodied at one point, but we consider him fully divine, and then he became embodied, but he was already divine before, at least as far as the view of Mormon scriptures would go, and specifically in Ether when he appears to the brother of Jared.
1: Yeah, very clearly, and the Holy Ghost has yet to be embodied. And we recognize the Holy Ghost as a divine person presently. So the notion that you have to have either a mortal body and or a fully resurrected body in order to be a divine person is simply false. But it's a very common assumption held by Mormons that it's the fact that you do have to have that to be fully divine. It's just a false notion.
0: Well, yeah, well, that stems from probably more of an idea that God became God and that a a necessary step along the way is to become a resurrected being and that's part of the step or the progression to becoming a God. I think it stems from that school of thought.
1: I agree with you but what I've just explained also demonstrates why the two schools of thought are logically mutually exclusive. It can't possibly be the case that you grow to be a God by becoming fully resurrected and you're not a God before. And that there be a Holy Ghost who hasn't gone through that fully to become fully divine, or that you had a son who was divine before becoming mortal. So any of you that you're going to square with the scriptures can't have those kinds of assumptions in it, or it's a logical mess.
0: I would agree with you.
1: And that's one Mm -hmm. of the things I've been pointing out, and that's why I've looked at and indicated I think you're reading these, these scriptures in a way that isn't merely contrary to scripture, but it's a way that they don't read at all, because... Joseph Smith clearly held that the Holy Ghost is a fully divine being and that he's already, in some sense, in the process of growing further, but that someday he'll become immortal on another planet and that he will someday be resurrected. But that certainly isn't essential to be his being a fully divine being. These are concepts that Joseph Smith taught within months of the end of his life. When I hear Mormons who say, well, the view that you're presenting is one that is just simply traditional Christianity, I look at them and just shake my head and say, well, I don't think you know much about traditional Christianity, but I don't think you've thought much about what Joseph Smith said either.
2: On that note, then, I understand how we would need to get a body and to come down and experience this so that we can learn to have the type of love that the Godhead has for each other. What advantage is there, if any, if a person is already divine, in getting a body, if it doesn't have any bearing on their divine status.
1: We already addressed that. There's a type of knowledge, experiential knowledge, which can't be gained except through through having firsthand experiences. And so Christ could learn from the things that he suffers in a body. He could learn how to succor his people. There are things that can be learned by a divine person by becoming embodied that can't be learned in any other way. The other concept here, and it's extremely important, is that When the divine persons are united as one in the Godhead, they can't experience things like aloneness or isolation or alienation. Those are the kind of things that are excluded by being in the most loving, complete relationship, most fulfilling relationship, even possibly imaginable. And so in order for them to know what what it is to be alone and alienated, to be rejected, a divine person would have to become embodied in this sense to learn from firsthand experience what it is to have bodily suffering and how to more fully and completely love. Now, you may say, well, that's a contradiction because God is already fully loving. But the problem here is that we're thinking of divinity as as if though, it's something already that would be fully completed if you reach. It's like getting to the end of the internet. Someday you'll get to the end of the internet, and God already made it to the end of the internet. And anybody who claimed that they made it to the end of the internet, you just look at them and say, I don't think you understand what the internet is. It's also like thinking of divinity as an 18-hole golf course, and if you get a hole-in-one on every hole and get 18, then you've got the greatest possible reality of an 18-score in golf. But that's not the way it is. God is like the full set of integers, and that is it's infinite. There is no complete set of integers that you could ever write down. It is always ongoing, always becoming greater, and so... These are the differences in thinking, and this is why, remember, in in book one, I start out by saying, you've got to understand that Mormons don't think of God as an absolute upper limit the way the classical Christians do. We view God more in the way the process theists do, that God is always everlastingly in progress, always eternally progressing, and always self-surpassing in each new moment, because there is no greatest possible glory, no greatest possible love. All of these things can increase. The very notion of a greatest possible love is a contradiction, I would suggest. It's always increasing itself. It's always growing. And we can always learn new ways to love and have new kinds of of knowledge by having these first-hand experiences. That's why.
0: And I guess, ultimately, those are all justifications after the fact that the main reason that this is even asserted here at all is just because it's a teaching that Joseph Smith taught, and therefore... We're trying to justify how that could be, and, you know, what you've said makes sense. It's a way to make it work, but ultimately it drives because that's one of the Mormon teachings, and therefore we have to take that into account. If you believe Joseph Smith at all, you should probably, you know, take this one into account too.
1: Well, Joseph's latecomer to this party, because it's already in Hebrews 5, And the notion that God is increasing is certainly not...
0: No, not that. I I mean the embodiment part.
1: You mean that the Father was embodied or the Christ became embodied? Because he's certainly not the first one to the party on that.
0: No, yeah. I'm just saying we we have a commitment because it's written. He's like, oh, the the, the Father has a body as flesh and bone, as tangible as man's, although it's not of gross matter, it's of some sort of... Higher level stuff. Anyway, I'm just saying that's where the commitment begins from, right? You look to the scriptures, it has it in there or not?
1: Yeah, no, that's false. The reality is is that any Christian who believes in the resurrection has this problem. And it's not a problem, it's an opportunity. Any Christian who believes that Christ is resurrected and in a glorified body has the opportunity to understand fully what it means for a divine person to have a fully glorified, perfect body. And so. This isn't driven by Joseph Smith's view that the father has a body. It's already inherent in the notion that the son became incarnate, took upon himself a body, and died and was resurrected. It's inherent in the very essence of Christianity. And so it has to be dealt with theologically. And the fact that I'm pointing this out would suggest that, you know, they really haven't dealt with the fact that the son still has a resurrected body. They've kind of ignored that.
0: The next two quotes go along with that just peachy, so read those if you would. Jacob?
2: Joseph Smith is not the first one to be thinking about the Father being embodied. Thomas Aquinas argued that the Father was also potentially embodied, saying, whatever the Son can do, so can the Father and the Holy Ghost. But the Son was able to become incarnate. Therefore, the Father and the Holy Ghost were able to become incarnate.
1: Yeah, it just stands to reason. I mean, they're a divine person in the same sense that the the Son is. And in order to have the same kind of power that, that Christ would have, and this is his reasoning, they would have to be able to do what Christ did. But if he took on a body, well, they'd have to be able to do that, too. It doesn't mean that he believes they did. Unlike Joseph Smith, he believed that the Father didn't and the Holy Ghost won't. But the bottom line is, is there's no logical reason why that couldn't be the case. And Joseph Smith had an argument based upon John 5 that the Scriptures teach that the Son did only what he saw the Father do. And Joseph Smith takes from that, well, that means that the Father must have had an experience like we do. Now, that's obviously reading something into that Scripture more than anybody else is going to get out of it. But that's what happens with divine inspiration. You see meanings in scripture that everybody else misses, and it leads to inspiration about, wow, there's this this truth here that is now being revealed to me as a result of reading this scripture.
2: All right. And uh, to wrap up this section, uh, you say, creedal Christians may believe that Christ's body is retained only in his human nature, though Christ is fully glorified even in his body. The Mormon belief is similar in that while the Father and the Son are localized in their bodily presence, their spirit light or power, authority, and glory are diffused throughout all things in the material universe. And I believe that's the immanence that we talk about. Uh, They are present to us even though their localized material bodies are not immediately present.
0: And there was another quote I was supposed to put in here, but it's just that you point out, and I'm sure you're about to explain it, that while God has a body, he is not merely Body and
1: explain that. Well, God has a body, the body doesn't have Him. That's another way of saying that God is much more than just a human body. His presence, in the way that I have defined it, that's the ability to effectuate His will at any place that He desires. His presence and power are omnipresent in the sense that He can effectuate His will anywhere at any time, and He's not limited to carrying out things by His body. As human beings, We're limited to what our bodies can bring about. Now, that's attenuated. I mean, anybody who's been on the internet recognizes that we can bring about effects far removed from us, but we always kind of depend on a bodily action in order to be able to do that. Now, maybe someday we'll be able to put electrodes on our head and it will read our brain waves and we won't even have to move our bodies. But intentionally having a brain state is still a bodily state. So we're limited to our body's movements and acts in order to bring things about. God is not so limited, and that's an important distinction to make.
2: All right, that brings us on to the next section, and we'll go back over to Corey.
0: The next section is titled, The Problem of Diminished Divinity. You say, Leftow also argues that social Trinitarian theories generically suffer from the problem of diminished divinity in which the one God is properly the Trinity as a whole. Thus, the Trinity as a whole is properly God, but the divine persons are not. And we talked about that a little bit already with social Trinitarianism, but uh, again, this is just gives rise to, you know, each individually, and I think in your view too, it it might have this problem. You, you say, I'll just read the next quote. See, so Leftau undoubtedly would argue that the diminished divinity problem enters the picture in a new way, in my view, of the Mormon doctrine of the Godhead. He may argue that in this view, only the Father is properly God, because He alone is the fount of divinity, and He alone possesses the properties of divinity in himself. Thus the Son and the Spirit suffer from diminished divinity in comparison to the Father. So, I guess just first off, what you're saying here, if I'm understanding it, if you're outlining your view or just saying what he might think about your view, do you believe that the Father is the fount of divinity in that he alone possesses these properties of divinity in himself? Because I thought you said that he doesn't, he only arises emergently.
1: He's the fount of divinity in a different way. That is, it was his love that came first in a logical sense. And what we're saying is that the Father is the one to whom the others give all glory. So the reason for giving all glory to the Father is it's his love that they are returning. He's the fount of divinity because he chose to love us first. But it's a choice. What Leftau is pointing to, I think, is what theologians call the sovereignty aseity intuition, and that is God can't be dependent on anything else for his power and divinity, or he couldn't be God, because if it were dependent and that other thing failed him, then God would fail, and God has to be that being who can't fail. Now, I think that's the intuition that, that Leftow is depending on here, though he doesn't really say that. He does elsewhere in, in a number of arguments. But the Father doesn't have a property of divinity in himself any more than the other divine persons do or any more than we do. We are just the kinds of beings, because of the species that we are, that has the capacity to be in a fully divine relationship when we choose to fully love one another in a unity. And the divine persons all have this power in themselves, and we have that power in ourselves as well. So it's not an ontological distinction that I've made. So the Father doesn't have any more of what we may call deity or divinity than the other divine persons do, and the other divine persons would include us. Okay, so
0: we all have the capacity for this full divinity, but none of us can realize it without another that enters into this, whatever the threshold is for this divine unity.
1: at At this point, it's entering into a relationship with the Father through the mediation of the Son and the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what the Scriptures teach the reason for that is very simple, and you know, that's the view that I've been propounding all along, that it's a relationship with the Father in that sense that is the fount of divinity.
0: Okay, you just go on and say, left out concedes that if a person has certain properties to a certain degree, then that person is fully divine, and you point out that is precisely what I propose.
1: Yeah, I remember going back to Volume 1 when I defined what it was to, to have maximal knowledge and maximal power. So if one has those properties in their maximal degree possible, then that individual is fully divine. There's no such thing as individual divinity in order to have that kind of power and knowledge, one would, of necessity, be in a loving unity of relationship with the other divine persons, because the, those properties emerge in reliance on that kind of relationship.
0: And then, next, you say, perhaps Leftau would argue that the mutual dependence of the divine persons on each other for their full divinity conflicts with the intuition that God must be divine without dependence. It may be argued that God must possess a deity or have the fullness of a divine nature in and of itself. Or it would be possible that for God to cease to be God, and I guess we already talked
1: about that one. We have, but I want to point out that the response to that is that the kind of power that the divine persons have, there's nothing outside the Godhead that could cause them to cease to be fully divine. They could cause themselves to not be fully divine by by choosing not to love one another. But there's no problem if it's a free choice. If the worry is, well, suddenly they're going to stop loving each other, then I would suggest that that would be stupidity of the grandest sort. And when we're talking about omniscient beings, it's just that uh, an omniscient being's not going to make that free choice because it would be stupidity. We'll bring that up in the
0: next section, too, pretty directly. So let's move on, if we will, here. So you asked the question, how can the Father be the same divinity as the Son and the Spirit and at the same time uniquely the one God who is incomparably great? And I didn't write down your answers here, but how can he be the one God if there are also... I don't know. I guess... And I know I asked this question again in a second, but I, last time, at least I thought we came to the understanding that, well, it didn't have to be the father that initiated this relationship.
1: It just so happens that he did. That's right. There's nothing logically necessary that it's the father, but there are a lot of other kinds of you know, factual necessities besides <laughs> logical necessity. This is a factual necessity now because it, it has always been the case, and that's a kind of necessity of the past. And So at this point, it just happens to be that way. And, you know, a reminder, we started out this discussion in defining three ways that when we talk about God, the God is is one God. So those are the senses in which I believe that it's appropriate to say that there's one God.
0: Okay, fair enough. And now we kind of move on to this. You say there is, of course, a long history of subordinationism based upon numerous scriptural texts which recognize the son's subordination to the father, which is some of the things you were talking about with Jacob. But he nevertheless, Mormons ought to be skittish about adopting any view that renders the Son subordinate in the sense that the Son is somehow less divine than the Father. Because, like classical Christians, the Mormon scriptures clearly insist that only an infinite God will suffice to bring about the Atonement. The notion that the Son is fully God is more central to Mormon scriptures than
1: has been generally realized. So, yeah, it's just a recognition that It can't be the case that we're saying, well, there's this subordinationism, which means there's a graded kind of divinity, and the Son is less divine than the Father. That just can't be.
0: Okay, and next, we're going to move into another problem, which is called the competing omnipotence problem. And just to introduce that, I mean, just if you take, at least in the notion of the classical meaning of omnipotence, meaning has all the power, basically, then it seems to be a contradiction saying that three beings have all the power, because... The contradiction comes when they would come to one another, because can one thwart the will, or one thwart the attempts at asserting power of the other? And if they're all omnipotent, that's a contradiction. But you point out, you say, I believe that this supposed problem with omnipotence is quite easily answered, given the view of God that I propose here. Necessarily, there cannot be competing omnipotent wills, because if the wills are in competition, they are, by definition, in the view that I have proposed, not omnipotent. Further, the divine persons will not compete with one another to achieve competing interests because they are perfectly transparent to one another, knowing each other's will perfectly. in addition, they are perfectly rational, and it would be irrational to compete with another a member of the Godhead, and cease to agree as one because to do so would result in ceasing to be omnipotent. Thus, the divine persons would see that it is impossible to accomplish any purpose unless they agree. so you're just saying that uh, on your view. That's also a contradiction to say that there would be a problem there just because their divinity would cease if they tried to compete with one another in the way that left out would describe.
1: Yeah, the the usual problem is simply as you described it. If two omnipotent people have differing wills, say that one wills to save the entire world and the other wills to leave them free to decide on their own whether they will accept the saving relationship, They couldn't both accomplish their purposes, but if they're omnipotent, by definition, they have to be able to accomplish their purposes. And so that's the problem of competing omnipotence. An an omnipotent being can't be thwarted by the will of another, or it's not omnipotent. On the view that I presented, there is no such thing as omnipotence unless the divine relationship of perfect love exists in the first place. And so there's not even a potential for divine omnipotent wills to compete or disagree, because if they do, then by definition, they're not omnipotent. That means that this problem simply can't arise, it just dissolves it.
0: And then you bring up an analogy to explain it further. You say, the members of the Godhead are like flashlight batteries for each other. They have the capacity to let their light shine only if they are in the presence of a power source. They are a source of power that energizes each other such that when they are united as one, their intrinsic capacity to shine is actuated. The divine persons empower one another. They do not create yet another divine entity. So I guess that is an argument we brought up in Social Trinitarianism, saying that, well, technically, God is only these united persons together, and that creates the entity God, whereas you're saying that it's not like that. It's when they come together, their godlike abilities become enabled. And so they're still three completely individual gods, but they only have this ability when they have this relationship with one another.
1: Yeah, it's like, I'm going to use another analogy, and it's a bad one, but it, it will stand out. In Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, they had these three stones that they had to find because when they all came together, they had a power that was immense. But they all had to be brought together before they had this power. So they had found two of them, and they were sitting there. And then when they brought the third one and put it where the other three are, they all began to shine, and they had this power together. But you had to have the third one so that they had this power. It's another way to think about it.
0: Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Let's see. So I had a couple questions here. One I wrote down, one I didn't. So let me try to articulate the first So as far as the subordination is concerned, I don't know, in my mind it just seems like we don't have three wills being realized, we only have one will, the Father's, because the other two always submit to the Father, and I'm sure we'll bring this up later, but if we are later, you know, humans can join into this divine relationship, and it's only if they submit their wills to the Father as well, so ultimately if everyone submits to the Father then no one else seems to have a will, it's just the Father's will because if you just, I don't know, like I, I mean you point this out in a second, you say they can disagree with one another and you can expound on that but if they do then they cease to be God but yet I don't know, it just seems like they always have to submit to the Father and therefore the Father's will is the only one that actually will ever be actuated.
1: Right, the Father's will is the only one that's ever manifest It's like when Christ is looking at death on a Roman cross and he's saying, Father, let this cup pass for me. He doesn't want to do it. And his will is clearly potentially diverging with the Father's because it seems to be implied that if he doesn't want to go through it, he doesn't have to. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I think what's happening here is Christ is recognizing in order to carry out the divine plan, I've got to go through with this. I can choose to shrink from this, but if I do, the entire plan is lost. And because I love the Father and because I love everybody else so much, I'm going to go through with it no matter what the cost. And so he has a choice, but if he makes the wrong choice, everything is lost. But that's just the way it is with us too. If we make the wrong choice, we're lost. We can choose not to be in this relationship. You know, you're looking at it in the perspective we are. You're saying, well, that's just stupidity. Why would anybody make that choice? You're you're telling me I have the choice to be in the most fulfilling relationship possible and have everything in the universe and with all the power and have all the knowledge possible and to be able to express who and what I am fully in, in the greatest of all possible relationships. And I'm saying, yeah, you can choose not to be in that relationship. People make decisions to create distance between them and others, even when they know it's going to cause misery for everyone. That's just human stupidity, and it's just the way we sometimes are. So, yeah, but when we do, I mean, you know, we separate ourselves. The divine persons, if we're going to be in that kind of relationship, then we submit to the Father's will. That's the condition.
0: Okay, well, that's what I I mean. Maybe it's just kind of my, you know, American mindset that values the individual so much, but I tend to have a fear of my will not being my will anymore or not ever being able to be realized and always, like if I'm in a divine Perfect loving relationship with someone who that basically supersedes my will at all times, otherwise I can't be in that relationship. Is that worth it, or am I just looking through it through
1: the wrong lens? Well, we could get very particular. look, it may be that your will could diverge in different ways, like you could choose to be in different places. you can make um choices obviously about who you're married to for all eternity, those kinds of choices, and God leaves that up to you. And so there are times when when we would say, well, you know, what do you will for me? And God literally says, well, and this goes both ways, by the way, if we're obstinate and refuse to do God's will, God ultimately says to us, just as C.S. Lewis said, okay, thy will be done. And we get what we want. And so it's not the case that we don't have our wills. It's just that if we choose against love, then we're choosing in a way that we can't enjoy what the benefits of being in a loving relationship are. This is the bottom line of my entire view. You can't have the benefits of a loving relationship unless you choose to be loving and in a loving relationship. You just can't. It's just the natural way things are.
0: Yeah, but in a loving relationship, is there only one will ever acknowledged? Because I don't think that would be a loving relationship.
1: It is if you've got a divine person who is absolutely committed to your best interests and knows what your best interests are. You can either agree with him about what your best interests are or you can disagree with him, in which case he's going to say, gee, I wish you'd agree with me. But if you don't want to do what's in your best interest, so be it.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, maybe it's just the American in me. But when I hear that, it's like, well, who are you to decide what's in my best interest? I think my best interest must, of necessity, be my decision.
1: Yeah, but it's like when, I mean, you've got kids. It's like when they want to run out into the street and you override their decision because you're saying, sorry, there are certain limits. I'm not going to let you destroy your life.
0: That's for safety, but not like the life direction. I, I would feel like if my kid came to me and was like, I want to be a doctor, and I'm like, No, you can't be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. That's what you have to be, and that's what's good for you, because I've seen that, and it's successful, and that's the only way that I would allow you to. I would think that we would all agree that's not good.
1: Well, you've got a bad assumption here. You're assuming that God has made decisions for your life in all things, and that you have to agree with him about every decision in your life.
0: I'm not talking about life. I'm talking about that just as a metaphor for Godhood.
1: God has a plan, plan, and his plan is to bring about the immortality and eternal life of humankind. And it's that plan that we must agree with. You don't have to agree with God. I don't think God has made a decision for you about whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or an advertising agent or whatever else you want to be. I think that God's saying, yeah, that's up to you. That's my will for you is what you choose. My will is to watch you choose and be interested in what and and see how you choose to grow. And I'm going to enjoy it as I watch it. So I think that when we're talking about agreeing with God's will here, we're not talking about the minutiae of things that must be left up to you as an individual. I mean, what you have for dinner tomorrow night is not something that God has a divine plan about.
0: Okay. I was trying to use that as a metaphor for when we're in the divine unity. I'm not really thinking about right now, because right now I can see how I'd be like, well, I have a limited cut-off knowledge from all the knowledge that you could have as a God, but once you're a God and you share all this knowledge, then I think I should be able to have just as much of a say on will is everyone else and i can understand i guess that wouldn't work if everyone then then that comes back to the power of competing omnipotence i guess which you say can't happen but i'm saying
1: well it also comes back to stupidity you have a being that loves you with everything possible who's committed to your best interest and if you disagree with him you're disagreeing against him against your best interest (laughs) and so it's like yeah i mean you can disagree with me about that if you choose and it's fully your will that will be realized but why on earth would you do that?
0: All right, fair enough, and then uh, another question. Last time we talked about, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly if you agreed with me, but we did agree it was maybe logically possible, mm-hmm. and you say the only reason that it wasn't this way is just because the scriptures say it, so you say that there's only one Godhead, and let's say a, a center of divinity, and I use the analogy of a sun that attracts other planets, and its gravitational pull is the thing that allows them to be in existence, in the way that they are but I also said you know in that analogy there can also be another Sun that's as long as it's sufficiently far enough away from that power that it can arise just the idea that in your view divinity arises from a certain type of relationship not necessarily dependent on any of the individuals in that relationship we just happen to have the scriptures that say it was this particular being but logically another set of beings in this kind of relationship could arise, and I call that a logical alternative godhead, and couldn't that then somewhat compete or thwart the will of this godhead and and give rise to another sense of the problem of competing omnipotence?
1: Now, that is logically impossible, because the love that the Father has is all-inclusive. It includes every living being and every living thing as a practical matter, and even unliving things like the earth and planets. And so if there were two godheads, they couldn't possibly compete because they would be in love with each other. It would be like two galaxies that merge with each other. You can go look at the pictures online of what Hubble Telescope has taken of galaxies merging, if you want. They would just automatically merge because they would realize in their love that it makes sense to simply be in love and union with each other to fully express their love.
0: I won't get more into that then. The next two are things that I, I asked in the last podcast, and I was happy to be reading that you had addressed them in this chapter, and maybe you should have just told me that, but anyway, we'll sort of address them here, but we've already kind of talked about them, so I just want to read what you said here. You say, it may also be asked why there are three united from all eternity instead of two, or three million. The answer is that the number of divine persons united from eternity could have been any number, but Revelation discloses that the number just happens to be three. Because the choice to be so united is a free choice in a libertarian sense, it is a mistake to seek some answer outside of the will of the divine persons that dictates that they must make that choice. I don't really understand what you mean by that last
1: sentence, so what, what do you mean? It's the very nature of free will that there isn't something external to the will that dictates what choice it makes.
0: All right, and then this other question I asked last time too, but and I've asked it a few times, but apparently you... You had thought of that before you say it may also be asked how it is possible for persons to choose from all eternity to be in such a relationship it seems that there must be at least some temporal moment prior to the time that they chose to be in the divine relationship of indwelling unity however it is not true that there must be a time before they freely chose to enter into relationship with each other it is logically possible that in each moment of the existence for divine persons they make such a choice. Therefore, it is logically possible that they make that choice in every moment of eternal existence. So we've talked about that at length
1: previously, but... Right. The notion is very simple. If it's possible to make the decision at this point in time, it was possible to make the same decision at every time at which one existed. And if one has existed for eternity, it's possible that that choice has been made in each moment of eternal existence.
0: Right, um, but we did talk about last time that Again, this, like the other of there being three, is, at least from what you said, was basically only because that's what it says in Scripture, that God is from eternity to eternity, one God and such. But I just had a kind of a logical question, not logical, but like just a question about the Scriptures, because you had mentioned, at least in the Hebrew translation of the Scriptures, eternity, the words that they use, either just mean kind of like, a really, really long time, or like an epoch of time, or just a nonspecific period of time. And so, logically it's possible that they weren't in this relationship that's not essential to them being gods. It can arise because that's the only way that we can enter this relationship if it's not logically necessary that they're in this relationship. And also, you pointed out, it can't be necessary that they're in this relationship because they have to have the freedom to not be in that relationship. So, um, other than it being in the scriptures, is there any other reason why it couldn't have been that it arose at some point? And what problem would that pose, other than maybe violating a couple scriptures that may or may not actually mean that?
1: Because the order of the universe is dependent on the divine will, it's necessary that in each moment of the universe that they've been ordering it.
0: Okay, but the so. universe, as we know, it, has not existed ordered, otherwise they would not have had order, would not have had to order it, correct?
1: That's true, but the fact is that each moment that they've existed, order had to exist at least sufficiently for divine persons to exist in whatever way they exist. I have a very, very long article where I discuss these kinds of questions, and it would take us way too long to go into it tonight.
0: I believe you, and I just wanted to ask that one question about it. Okay, that concludes that section, and then there's just one more section which we can go through really quick, and it has a story, and then I just want you to kind of tell how that relates to this view of social Trinitarianism and Mormonism.
2: So, Dale Tuggy has argued that social Trinitarianism essentially entails that God is deceptive about his identity. So, he constructs this analogy of a young girl who is contacted by three men, each of whom presents himself as Fred, her estranged father. Although, in reality, none of them is Fred, and the three of them arranged among themselves to each contact her from time to time, presenting himself as her father. When the little girl finally meets Fred, she discovers that there are Are in reality three of them, and that none of them is really her father. In essence, there is no Fred. She correctly feels that she has been deceived about who had been contacting her over the years. Her father is really the three of them together somehow. Tuggy argues that social Trinitarianism is like this example. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it's an interesting thought experiment, but it doesn't really reflect what's happening with the social Trinity very closely at all. What's really happening in social Trinitarianism is that there are three divine persons, all of whom together have abilities that they don't have alone. So let me change it. All three of them have to work together for her father, Fred, to call her. And so one has the ability to build phone lines, and the other has the ability to build phone poles, and the other has the ability to put together a phone, and then they all get on the phone and speak with her. And they explain, it takes all three of us for your father, Fred, to speak to you. Okay, that's just the way it is. And then her father, Fred, speaks to her. I mean, the scriptures and what social Trinitarianism are presenting is not that there are three beings who present themselves to be the same identical, same individual. That's what is entailed in this story. In fact, that's the opposite of what social Trinitarianism is. What he's actually given us is an analogy for Latin Trinitarianism. And so I I think that Tuggy has misconceived social Trinitarianism but it seems to me that there's also this cultural disconnect about the practices of divine agency. I mean, let me give this example. In the Old Testament, we have the angel of Yahweh appearing. He actually appears and he wrestles with Jacob, remember? And he says, I am, I am the very God. You have the same thing happening when the angel of God appears at his tent and he presents himself as though he is himself Yahweh using the very name. So you have this angel of God throughout the Old Testament who appears in God's very name and appearing as if though he's God. And then somehow we get through the narrative of the various threads that are put together in those stories that this isn't really Yahweh, it's just his angel, because it later on calls him the Melech Yahweh, the, the angel of Yahweh. And so what we have is is God using agents to appear, using what we would call the ancient saliyah, That's that's Hebrew for sent, the sending narratives and that is that an agent does this remember what would happen is that a messenger would take and memorize the message from the king and so he would start out by saying okay i am king david go and tell the king of the, the hittites or the Assyrians or whoever else we're going to go and tell them the following message and so he goes and when he appears he speaks in the first person because that's what he memorized i am king david i say to you the following so, you know, obviously the messenger is not King David, but that's how it was done with, with messenger agents in antiquity. We also have this kind of a thing when the angel appears and says, look, I'm Yahweh, here's my message. We also have the same thing appearing, for instance, in, in Revelation, when we know it's an angel. He appears saying that he's the first and the last, even he who was dead, and he's Alpha and Omega, he's, he's God. And then he has to explain to John halfway through the narrative when John thinks that he really is God and falls down to worshiping. It's like, what are you doing? Get up. I'm not God. I'm his messenger. (laughs) Okay. So was John deceived when he thought that the angel was God? No. The fact is, John was mistaken. He didn't fully understand what was going on. That's the biblical background of the social trinity. And I've explained it at length throughout the entire book that we're dealing with. And what the kinds of conceptuality in the thought world in which these kind of concepts arose and in which they work. And so I don't think there's a divine deception at all. I think what we have is an agency relationship to a messenger in the ancient honor and shame cultures. And it has to be understood to understand how these concepts work. All
2: right. As you sum up, you know, the feeling of being deceived, it's more of a cultural disconnect. Because like you just said, these appearings of angels as messengers, but appearing as either Christ or God could be construed as deceptive if we just use that modern lens, but that's our own cultural expectations taking over and not really what's happening. And so you say, as such, the, the argument doesn't have much punch.
1: Yeah, it's just, I, I don't think the argument works. Del Tughey is a leading authority on the problems of the Trinity. He happens to be a Unitarian, meaning that he believes that there's only one God and You know, I don't know how Unitarians work that out with what the scriptures say. Well, I actually do, but I don't think it works. And I like Del Tuggy. He's written me. When I wrote my critique of him, I sent it to him. He's in Fredonia. He teaches philosophy there, and and, uh, he's been very kind. We've exchanged letters on a number of occasions, and uh, he's been very kind to respond. But, you know, I, I, I think that my critique of him is accurate. Undoubtedly, he would not.
0: And the last parts of the chapter, I don't know if you want to go into it here, you don't have to, but... You kind of then talk about, in the Mormon view, we seem to have this confusion of identity of who is actually Yahweh and so forth, and that's kind of evolved over time. Is there anything you want to say about that?
1: What we're saying is that the divine name Yahweh has been given to the Son, and, and it is Christ's very name, and so he properly appears and has the divine name because it was given to him. That's a standard Christian notion because it's, ex- it's exactly what Philippians 2 asserts and so the bottom line is is that the divine name is that there's power in the name you've got to understand in the ancient world a name held the power and identity of the one whose name it was and if you give your name to somebody you're sharing that power and identity with them and that's precisely the concept that we have when the father gives the name to the son the same thing was thought that when a father gave his own name to a son that the son was kind of the the father all over again and a lot of sons are just their fathers all over again But the bottom line is that there's this notion of identity of persons when the name is given to them and that's the thought world we're functioning in and and i think it's just a category mistake to try to suggest that what social trinitarianism is doing is somehow a deception
0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.